Let's get behind the information curtain and talk access and options. You're listening to the Information Asymmetry Podcast with Montana Butch and Michael Wilson. Brought to you by Thin Edge Production. Now, sit down and put your headphones on. It's time to roll. So I think that the, um, the one thing that we have left on the table really to discuss around the whole meritocracy argument is maybe moral and ethical quandaries. Being a six foot eight, you know, inner city, a black kid in Chicago rowing, you stand out, you can commoditize yourself. This idea that there are ways in which, and, and using sports easy, but it could be almost in anything, where you can commoditize yourself and are, are there moral or ethical hangups in doing so? Uh, you know, if everyone's going to start at a different starting line uh, with the same finish line, uh, you know, how do we, you know, how do we create equity at the start line? And if it is people realizing that there are, you know, angles to play, is that necessarily a bad thing? And ultimately by many people playing them many times over, over a passage of time, does that almost blow up? the uh the system in a good way so that everyone needs to be more equitable as a result downstream it's kind of an open question that i pose i've always and this is just my sort of personal worldview but i've always looked at systems as very hard to change it's like turning around an oil tanker uh you know it's going to take many 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 miles of of turning the ship whereas individuals can, can change when they make the decision to change. Now, I'm, I'm framing that as easier than it actually is, but we're, we're speedboats, right? We can just flip on a dime. And what I mean by that is, as an example, in my, my research lab at Utah State University, Utah is not the most diverse place in the world. What I've tried to do um, is bring in first-gen scholars, is bring in uh, people of different races and ethnicities and backgrounds, bring in foreign students. When, I, when I'm talking about bringing in graduate students to work in my lab, I could bring in a bunch of people like me and clone me and have a bunch of me's running around, but that's not fun for anybody. What's fun is, is, and this is kind of maybe from my coaching background that I'm applying now to being an academic mentor, is seeing people that maybe wouldn't otherwise have an opportunity succeed through hard work, which I can mentor, uh, through knowledge, which I can provide, um, through their own life lesson learning, which they sort of need to stand up in their own two boots and, and figure out on their pathway. But I, what I'm getting to here is I think it, it takes a collection, a critical mass of individuals to make a decision that I'm going to change it from the inside out rather than a bunch of people, you know, holding picket signs at the state legislature to change policy. That, that can be important, too, and that can create, you know, formative shifts, I think, in the way we view our world and our, our, uh, our culture. But for me, one person, all I can do is, is focus on how, how I sort of engage and live my life. And I think when a lot of people do that, you have a critical mass of people engaged in that way. We can move that starting line. So do you have any, or are there any ethical and moral hangups posed by the fact that if there are ways in which a younger person can effectively commoditize themselves to take advantage of systems as they currently exist and in their, you know, in your speedboat analogy, um, you know, make a, a needed sharp turn to a, a shortcut that's going to benefit them uh, because the system will allow it. 
do we have any hangups with that at all um, or not? I mean, that's just a function of the system and over time, uh, enough people will do it. The systems will change and, uh, and, and we carry on. There's no, there's no ethical, moral quandary there at all. I mean, I, I, I think it's a developmental question. I, you know, if we're talking about an eight year old who's, who's great for his or her age in basketball and you have a bunch of, you know, grifters and, and people trying to leverage that and turn that into monetization for themselves or their families. Right. We see that with parents. This has been proliferated now with NIL um, discussions in, in college sports. We see parents that are, you know, creating creating brands for their seven-year-olds in AAU basketball tournaments uh, because the opportunities are out there. So to answer your question directly, if it will profit the the child or the athlete, then I think it's it's okay because that's that's providing them a pathway. If it's only profiting those around them. Uh, then, then that's where I think we get into the moral gray area, and maybe not even gray, maybe just you know immoral. I know you don't hear about it as much in the traditional sports, basketball, football, uh, baseball, track, and so on. But I know in gymnastics sometimes um, kids in our family, our families, plus kids, if they show ability at a young age, then they're kind of like forced um, if, if the if the family have means you know they'll get the private coaching and so on and so forth and um, now that you have a group that have uh, grown through that system and have a voice uh, a lot of you know former gymnasts complained that they felt like they were their the childhood was was robbed uh, they felt like they had to go to practice when they really didn't want to they had to perform when they were hurt all of that kind of stuff and it wasn't necessarily for the benefit of the child for some reason, it seemed like the family got some sort of esteem out of it. And I think that's when it can be somewhat problematic. Um, and, you know, you're not taking into consideration what the the young athlete's goal and ambition and, and so forth. And so they lose the passion for it. And I think that's when it becomes extremely sad and toxic. No, my, my son's in travel baseball now. He's uh, 11 and he's quite talented. Um, but my main focus for him is just to make sure he keeps enjoying what he's doing. Um, but I do see a lot of parents who don't have a background in athletics like I do, they're kind of living vicariously through their 11-year-old kid, which is totally misplaced. And you know, every now and then I'll get up on the, on the, on the batter's box and then Travis, you'll find this funny and I can hit huge home runs off, off my son and he finds that super exciting and, and you know cool. But beyond that, I'm, you know, it just shows proof that I can do this thing, but I don't put the pressure on him to do it as well. And I was never a baseball player. He knows that I was athletic, but he also knows that I'm not the one bad-mouthing him or the other team or causing issues on the sideline. As long as he's having fun, I'm all for it. And if he's not, what, what are we doing? And so hopefully I'm setting a good example here, uh, but he is young and he's in it. But Travis, you also have, a, you know, I'll pick on a personal thing from you because you have a narrative too, because your daughter is a tremendous downhill skier. But at the same time, she's also heavily involved in hockey, right? And there was a bad example there where, you know, it should never have happened in, in, in youth sports. And yet it's an example of what kind of Michael's talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've created for ourselves a system and I don't think it applies only to sport. I'm sure it's across other achievement domains as well. But uh, the long and short of it is her, her hockey coach um, was quite annoyed with her this year because she only comes to practice one day a week. Well, unbeknownst to the coach, you know, she's spending the other six days on the ski hill, you know, honing her craft there. And, and that's what she really loves. Hockey is a, a distant number two, but she also loves that. And I think any kid should be given space to pursue what they enjoy. And, and for Josie, my daughter, 
um, to have that opportunity to have a second sport, to have an outlet, to have something with a little less pressure, uh, I think is a great thing. Uh, and that got ruined through through a coach. Um, and that's that's always tough to see, you know, when when mentors, teachers, coaches, parents fail the young people. That's really hard for me to see. And I think, you know, one of the great things, we started this conversation by talking about autonomy and volition. And one of the great things that, that Spotivity uh, points towards as its North Star is, is putting that back in the young person's hands. And again, whether it's through sports or academics or after school activities, whatever that might be, it, it provides that, that, sense of, that sense of it's my identity and my pathway. Parents can still help, mentors can still help, but it's my pathway. And I think that's super imperative and super important. Uh, to Michael's point about keeping the kid motivated, it needs to be their journey. No, 100%. But maybe not if a trip to Boston for the summer comes up and, and maybe example <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, there. <laughs> well, I also know another story which was really interesting. Um, there was this young man, awesome football player. I mean, just big and fast and strong. And his father was an engineer at one of the local refineries here. And his first, the, the young man's freshman year in uh, high school, the dad was like, you're not going to play sports. I want you to explore other um, opportunities at the school, work on your academics and so on. So the freshman year, the kid went out for theater and actually loved theater. So he only was in theater his freshman year, went back to sports, particularly uh, football. Um, when he graduated, he got a football scholarship and he played a couple of years college ball. Uh, but then he switched over and went to theater. And now he's actually in New York trying to hone his craft, seeing how far uh, acting can get him. But if his dad, who, again, you know, was an engineer, had a strong academic background and wanted to make sure that his son had sort of a balanced experience, uh, he would have just played football throughout and probably would not have ever known that he has this, this passion for, for theater. And I think the more information, the more opportunities, the more different activities that young people can have access to, uh, and then they may, you know, dabble their foot in it, and then all of a sudden they realize that they like it. Uh, takes away the only few opportunities that they may otherwise see. Yeah, we'll get into later in, in a follow-up conversation about the uh, the details uh, that make the sausage that is, is spotivity and how we make uh, unknowns known, right? Uh, you know, we're, we're all ex-athletes of, of certain levels, so it's very easy for us to talk in a narrative that uses that as the backdrop, but that, you know, is only one of, of many outlets uh, that could take up a lot of time. And I know people that are thespians would look at us and laugh and argue that they spend more time honing their craft than we ever did at ours, right? And, and their argument wouldn't be wrong. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that uh, as a follow-up conversation, but, you know, it's exactly right. I mean, at the end of the day, no one knows what they don't know and any tool that can provide insight into that world of what you don't know and present it in such a way that is actionable by way of the user i think everyone would agree is a huge positive and uh the question of how much of a positive is really dependent on the individual and how much inner drive they have to then you know pursue said thing once they've identified it but but that you know we'll talk on uh, about another kind of personal you know, motivators that, that come into play as well, but kind of wrapping up this idea of of meritocracy. It's, you know, it's an interesting conversation to have within the context of America and how America seemingly values things and how the commercialization of sports drives a lot of the sports-based conversation, but also 
the um, uh, the marketing of certain enterprises outside of sports are, are lauded way more than others. You know, I think teachers are historically hugely undervalued and they're not paid nearly enough and it's not nearly glamorized yet being a, you know, a defense prosecutor is, you know, as, as an example, right? And so I think Americans and the American story, there are some interesting kind of limitators to allow this nice thought of people pursuing their personal passions, you know, to, to allow it to fully thrive because the backdrop is set up a little bit against them. And hopefully that, that changes over time because I think people would be happier if they found something that can um, sustain them yet, you know, be attributed to their passion and ultimately, you know, their life is positive uh, because of uh, that, that marriage. But, you know, as we wrap up this conversation here on meritocracy, so Mike and, and, and Travis, I want to stop talking and kind of leave the floor to you. Any kind of lasting thoughts or, or ideas around, you know, this role of meritocracy around the systems at play, uh, the various starting and, and, and finish points and, you know, kind of what words of wisdoms or, or gems would you, you drop here to kind of wrap up your overall thought on, on the topic, at least, at, you know, at, at this point in time? You know, in terms of take-home messages, I think we have to do a better job at providing access points. We talked earlier, Montana, about my kids being uh, you know, ski racers. That's great if you live in Utah and you're 15 minutes from a ski hill. But what about the kid from St. Louis who might show some promise in that sport? How do we get that kid an opportunity? And maybe it's not going to be ski racing because he lives in St. Louis. But how do we get that kid the opportunity to find his passion? For you, I know rowing wasn't really on your radar at the beginning. You had someone in your life or people in your life that presented that as an opportunity and you took it and ran with it. And I think humans, uh, by our very nature, are ready and willing to, to take a hold of something that we, that we find passion in and run with it. But if we don't know that it exists, if nobody introduces us to it, we can't run with anything. So for me, the take home message is we need to be a society of individuals um, both at the macro and micro level that provides access points and opportunities for young people to find things that they might fall in love with. And I, I think for me, it's the fact that we live in multiple societies simultaneously. I think the more opportunities, the more things we're exposed to, that helps us gain a better understanding of a variety of skill sets, a variety of um, what our interests may or may not be, and that us as an individual, even though we live in a group, uh, are we socialize in a group, we still are individuals. I think the next thing is that um, in this country, and probably not because of globalization uh, around the world, there's certain norms that are uh, required in regards to how people treat you. And if you don't know those norms, then you may struggle. Uh, here in this country, in uh, the U.S., the norms are heavily built on upper middle class white standards. And just like, you know, the Latin language is very heavily uh, apparent in the medical field. If you don't know, you know, how to give a firm handshake, if you don't know how to dress for a particular environment, if you don't know which eating utensil to, put, to use at a certain setting, then you're relaying all these different messages that you as an individual, I mean, I think is important, but other people that are watching you um, value those particular traits. And so how do we teach young people to become aware of all of those different norms? And I think sports, I think a variety of sports, 
I think that um, representation certainly matters. I mean, you know, you got the Williams sisters, they play tennis. Well, tennis is not a common sport in predominantly people of color's neighborhood. Uh, yet all of, and I know when I was growing up, we had a tennis court that was at the park where we had the basketball court. Nobody was playing tennis, but we were all playing basketball. But then you got the Williams sisters, all of a sudden a few people want to swing the racket. Uh, Tiger Woods changed perception of who could be golfers, even though you've had um, people of color playing golf for years, but he was young, you know, he was more relatable to a younger generation. So I do think having uh, access to and seeing people that you can relate to, and they don't necessarily have to be of the same ethnic uh, group, but uh, I think that makes it a little bit easier for uh, new generations, younger generations. And I think also taking away the fear of being the first. I think sometimes the fear of I'm the only one make people cower. But um, having access to opportunity, information, sharing that opportunity, taking that chance, I think in the long run, it, it really has a ripple effect. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, to, to kind of end it here, I mean, you can't be what you can't imagine yourself to be, or you can't be what you can't see. And so, you know, even though, you know, some of those examples you gave, we wouldn't classify those individuals as traditionally underserved. They definitely were, um, you know, differing against the backdrop of the normal participants. And so it behooves, at least in an American society, positioning them in the forefront, uh, if only for, you know, kind of black and white marketing purposes, but it has this nice knock-on benefit that the communities that they're inherently a part of can see them and then possibly can dream of being it as well. And so there's a, a really huge positive thing. So maybe we can use the American system uh, as an end around benefit, because clearly from a, from a Nike's perspective, uh, anyone buying golf gear is more money to their bottom line. And if they open up a whole new revenue stream because people of color want to buy stuff because Tiger Woods happens to be playing, then that's great. Let's do it. So they'll do it from a corporate perspective, but it has a positive social element to it as well. And I think that's what America can do well is they can play to that and, and, and hopefully, you know, draw more people out because more people doing more things more of the time from their perspective is great for the bottom line. But we're talking about it from the social perspective is, is also good. It's a nice knock on effect. Cool. Well, I thank you all for taking the time. Uh, Dr. George, thank you for, for spending time on, on your day. Uh, Michael, thank you as well. And uh, we'll be together again for the other conversation too, talking about how, how the genie kind of deconstructs a person and how we get at these bigger questions of making the unknowns known. It's a, a wide ranging conversation about how we actually do the work. Um, a lot of fun, but uh, at the same time, a different conversation from this one. But thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Enjoyed the conversation. I think I learned as much from you both uh, as hopefully you may have said, hmm, he had, he had some some interesting points to share. Yeah, likewise. Absolutely, Michael. Learn a lot from you in Montana. Always enjoy engaging. So hopefully the audience uh, enjoyed it as well. All right, guys. Have a good rest of the day. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you for listening to the Information Asymmetry Podcast. You've now been given some knowledge. Use it. This has been an exclusive Thin Edge production.